podcasts by Discovery. Hi, I am Dr. Morris Goodman, Chief Medical Officer of Discovery Health. Today, it is my distinct privilege and pleasure to launch COVID Clinical Brief. Dear colleagues, together we are facing a pandemic unlike any other that we have ever known. As doctors in the front line of this battle, the challenge is immense. We are facing a new world, one in which our lives, as well as those of the people for whom we care, are under constant threat. And now, for the first time, we have little or no evidence-based medicine on which to rely. We are now facing unique challenges in diagnosis, treatment, and public health decision-making with an insufficient evidence base. We need a credible, relevant source of information to ensure consistency in our decision-making, treatment standards, resource utilization, and messaging to our patients. In an attempt to assist you and provide you with factual data points and guidance from both local and global leading experts, Discovery Health and SAMA are jointly launching COVID Clinical Brief. This is an audio-visual series of podcasts and webinars to update you with the latest clinical insights and information on COVID-19. To ensure that this information is practical and relevant to you, we will ask that you forward us your specific queries to be answered within the series. We trust that this will help to equip you with additional up-to-date knowledge and guidance to best navigate these challenging times. We hope you find the podcasts and webinars valuable, and we look forward to your input and feedback. This is Guy Richards. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Critical Care attached to the University of the Witwatersrand. I'm going to be talking to you about coronavirus, and in particular talking about the SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus itself, and the disease it causes, which is COVID-19. As most of you know, on the 30th of January this year, the WHO declared the COVID-19 outbreak was a global public health emergency of international concern. And that was at the time when primarily the disease was localized to China. But already one week later, cases outside China had risen to 270 in 24 countries, and one death already had occurred in the Philippines. And in fact, the interesting thing was that the reason for the declaration of emergency was not the situation in China, because they were expected to be able to control that outbreak, but the potential for spread to countries that had weaker health systems. And in fact, of interest, since that period of time, the spread has primarily been to European countries and the United States. And as yet, although it is expanding rapidly in Africa at the moment, it has not yet reached the levels that have been seen in those countries or those areas that I've mentioned it now. So what do we know about this virus? We know that it is an RNA virus. It has a very specific uh, appearance. It's similar to the previous coronavirus infections that caused major outbreaks, and that was the SARS-CoV-1 that occurred in 2002, and also the MERS-CoV 
which occurred in um, 2012. And it actually spreads rapidly, perhaps reminiscent of a severe influenza season in terms of its ability to spread uh, significantly as well over a period of time. Uh, currently, the situation that we have in the world at the moment, we have 1,030,570 cases overall. Uh, there have been 54,000 deaths. Um, and if we reevaluate the, the current cases that are active at the moment, 95% of those are considered to be mild and 5% are considered to be severe. We might say, well, okay, only 5% are considered to be severe, but if you actually consider that the large, the enormous number, in fact, of patients or cases that there actually are, 5% represents a significant impact on hospital services all around the world um, as well. We need to look at the uh, mortality statistics. Generally, the mortality uh, is low by uh, as far as age is concerned. Generally, the mortality is low if we consider age. In the re ages of about 10 to 19, it's about 0.2%, and it only really starts to rise once one gets to the age of 50 to 59 where there's a mortality of approximately 1.3%, and that increases exponentially till you are in the region of 14.8% for those that are 80 years older and more. The reproductive number, that is the number of people who are infected by one individual who might have the disease, is in the region of 2.2, in other words, about 2.2 people will be infected by that single person. And the whole aim at the moment would be to try to decrease that reproductive number so that we could decrease the surge of cases which is occurring all around the world at the moment. For those in the front line, recognition of a potential case is absolutely critical. And here we really are looking at patients that have any acute respiratory illness, sudden onset of more than uh, one of a cough, sore throat, shortness of breath or fever, and generally we'd be looking at a fever of more than 38 degrees centigrade, or even a history of, of fever. And this doesn't necessarily mean that it is a patient that you would consider admitting. Those that you would uh, admit would be those that have a severe acute respiratory illness that requires admission to hospital. Uh, and no other etiology actually explains their presentation. Patients that would be particularly at risk are those who have had contact with somebody known to have the illness, those who have had a history of travel to or residence in a country where there is community spread, and contact with someone returning from a country where community spread has occurred. In addition, any healthcare worker or someone that has attended a hospital where patients with COVID-19 or people under investigation are actually present would be somebody that we would consider to be a risk factor. The most troublesome presentation is obviously those patients with pneumonia. And those are the patients that end up in hospital and also potentially end up in ICU. 
So when we look at uh, those patients with uh, relatively mild disease or with pneumonia, in adults, if there is no sign of severe pneumonia, and I'll mention those shortly, and there's no need for supplemental oxygen, they would still be considered to be relatively mild, although they would need to be admitted where space and resources actually exist. As far as children are concerned, we'd be looking at a pneumonia with a cough or difficulty breathing, plus fast breathing, and that really means if you're less than two months of age, that that would be respiration of more than 60 breaths per minute. If you were two to 11 months of age, it would be more than 50 breaths per minute, and one to five years of age, more than 40 breaths per minute. And there would be no other signs of severe pneumonia, just that this, these patients actually had pneumonia. If we're talking about the presence of severe pneumonia, well, then we're actually looking at fever and a respiratory rate that is increased, normally more than 30. This is for adults and adolescents. Any evidence of severe respiratory distress with flaring and anxiety and a saturation of less than 92% on room air. When we're talking about children, we're talking about cough or difficulty of breathing, plus at least one of the following, central cyanosis, a saturation of less than 90%, severe respiratory distress, and in small children that would be grunting, and if it was very severe, there would be chest indrawing as well. There are other signs that are actually present, but the primary ones are going to be the presence of hypoxemia and respiratory distress if we are looking at overall severity of the patients that we are talking about. Obviously, it is critical that as far as possible, we can protect those healthcare workers that are involved with patients presenting with this disease. And at the point of entry where you have screening personnel, they should really be wearing a medical mask and they should have access to hand hygiene solutions. If you're collecting respiratory specimens, then a hat along with goggles or face shield, a medical mask, gown and gloves are going to be the most important of the PPEs, personal protective equipment that the patients will be using. There is some controversy as to which type of mask those people that are collecting the respiratory specimens should be using. Although healthcare workers in general feel more comfortable with the N95 mask or the so-called respirator, which has a higher protective factor so long as it has been properly fit tested. The same protection should be used by the healthcare worker who is caring for a suspected or confirmed case of um, COVID-19. And if we actually are looking then at patients who are involved in aerosol generating procedures such as intubating patients or bronchoscopy or any other uh, type of activity, then a goggle or face shield is required along with an N95 respirator plus gown, gloves, face shield or goggles as well as a head covering. When attending two patients who may have COVID-19, a PUI or a person under investigation, the patient should be given a surgical mask, they should be isolated, or if that's not possible, grouped with those with the same potential diagnosis. And as discussed, the carer should be using, if they are greater than one to two meters from the patient, and if they are in close contact, 
then an N95 and the goggles and visor should be used as we've just discussed as well. Because the virus survives for a potentially long period of time on surfaces, one should avoid touching surfaces where secretions may be and always frequently wash the hands, utilize an alcohol-containing agent to sterilize the hands. It is useful to look at the disease as one which occurs in three potential phases, although obviously these merge into each other. There's firstly the viral response phase in which there are mild constitutional symptoms and that's associated with lab features such as lymphopenia, sometimes an increased INR, an increased D-dimer and a mild increase in the LDH. And this then merges over a variable period of time in a proportion of patients into a phase in which the pulmonary symptoms begin to emerge with dyspnea and mild hypoxemia. And that would be a PF ratio of less than or equal to 300. Importantly, they also have a rising C-reactive protein. The procalcitonin, however, remains low as that would be more likely to rise in patients with bacterial infections. An even smaller proportion of patients then progress to the so-called hyperinflammatory phase in which a cytokine storm occurs characterized by increased cytokines such as interleukin-2, 7, granulocyte colony stimulating factor, interferon gamma-inducible protein, etc., etc., including interleukin-6. Clinical markers of severity include older age, comorbidity, and that's particularly diabetes and hypertension, the presence of hypoxemia, requirement for mechanical ventilation, and evidence of organ dysfunction, including myocardial ischemia or heart failure. Laboratory parameters indicating severity include a neutrophilia, a higher lactate dehydrogenase, and a higher D-dimer, and one study said that an absolute D-dimer value of greater than one microgram per liter was particularly significant. A high ferritin is frequent and may in fact be a marker of hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis and is also obviously associated with an increased mortality. Cardiac disease and thrombotic episodes appear to contribute also to the mortality and with regard to this, a recent study described the relationship between troponin levels and prior cardiac disease and outcome. And in this circumstance, there was a significantly increased mortality in patients that had both previous cardiac disease and hypertension as well. There are no proven methods of treating this disease as yet. There are a number of antivirals that are being studied and that includes the remdesivir, an agent that was devised for the therapy of Ebola. And a recent study looking at lopinavir, ritonavir, which is used to treat HIV, was not shown to be helpful in this setting. Evidence for the use of chloroquine with or without azithromycin is accumulating, and the FDA has authorized the use of unproven therapies on the basis that benefit may exceed risk. Similarly, the Indian National Task Force for COVID-19 have authorized the use of chloroquine for prophylaxis, particularly for healthcare workers who have been exposed. We must emphasize that there is as yet no proven benefit of these agents in this setting. There is, however, significant evidence of in vitro activity of chloroquine against SARS-CoV-2. And as a consequence, this has resulted in 
many clinical studies in several Chinese hospitals and one more recently in France, which did show significantly better results in those patients that received the chloroquine. We must state, however, that these were not randomized controlled studies and there were potential limitations in terms of establishing definite efficacy of the chloroquine in these patients. Some studies, particularly in the US, recommend the addition of azithromycin, probably because it has some immunomodulatory effect. But do be aware that particularly in the setting of a myocarditis, which as mentioned is one of the complications of this disease, the combination of these two agents may prolong the QT interval and lead to torsade. So regular ECGs and monitoring would be necessary to prevent this complication from arising. Given the lack of definite evidence, the Department of Health in South Africa has not recommended the use of chloroquine routinely. However, we certainly would recommend, given the fact that there is little else to treat those patients and little else to pre prevent progression to the more severe inflammatory phase that I mentioned earlier as well. The dose that we would use is plasmaquine or chloroquine sulfate of 400 milligrams twice daily for day one and then 400 milligrams daily thereafter. As mentioned, some doctors might add azithromycin in a dose of 500 milligrams daily, but again, warning to watch out for the prolonged QT interval. As mentioned, some patients may develop the cytokine storm, and in this setting, monoclonal antibodies, particularly those against IL-6, such as tocilizumab, may be effective in terms of treating these patients. A preprint, non-peer-reviewed case series of 21 patients treated with tocilizumab between February 5th to the 14th in China reported marked success, including rapid resolution of fever and C-reactive protein, decreased oxygen requirements and resolution of the lung opacities on CT scanning. The authors state that the patients had all received routine treatment for a week before they'd actually received the tocilizumab, and that was the standard of care at the time, which included lopinavir, methylprednisone, and other supportive care. All of the patients had IL-6 analyzed prior to the administration, and the mean value was actually significantly elevated. Unfortunately, IL-6 is not routinely measured in South Africa, Immunotherapy using tocilizumab is listed as a treatment option for severe and critical cases with elevated IL-6 in the National Health Commission of the People's Republic of China in their COVID-19 diagnosis and treatment guide. The dose we use is 400 milligrams once daily. There is an option to repeat the dose 12 hours later if there in fact has been no improvement or no reduction in the fever. Again, one must hasten to add that at this point, there is no definite evidence that this is a therapy that is going to be helpful. Corticosteroids are generally not utilized, except again in this phase where the patients develop a hyperinflammatory response, characterized most easily by a rising C-reactive protein. In this setting, we would use the dose of steroid that we would use for severe bacterial infection, which would be 50 milligrams, six hourly of hydrocortisone or 100 milligrams, eight hourly 
there are more than 13 other compounds that are currently being tested to assess whether they are efficacious in this disease. Ventilatory practice for those patients with severe pneumonia involves adequate oxygenation, it involves the application of PEEP, it involves recruitment of the lungs, and this could be achieved, as I mentioned, with PEEP or with prone ventilation, or as we like to use, airway pressure release ventilation. These modalities of ventilation do, however, require a knowledge of modern ventilators and of how to use them in an appropriate manner. Finally, we need to actually flatten the curve, hopefully to decrease the number of patients being admitted to hospital at any one time. And in this regard, social distancing is critical. And this is why in South Africa, this lockdown has actually occurred. It will, however, only be effective if all of the populace are obedient with regard to the restrictions which have been placed on them and the extent to which testing can be performed. My feeling is, however, that only once a vaccine is available and then sufficient herd immunity exists that we will be able to control this potentially lethal disease. This podcast was brought to you by Discovery.